If you're ready to go deeper in your Bible study, Living the 66 Books of the Bible by Dr. David Jeremiah will help. You'll learn how to identify each book's purpose, theme, challenge, verse, and prayer. And it's yours with a donation of any amount to Turning Point this month. And if you give $60 or more, you'll also receive the first volume of this series and a Genesis through Revelation DVD. To learn more, visit davidjeremiah.ca. you rather witness to? Someone who has turned their back on God or someone who thinks they're doing fine without God? Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah profiles both of these from the parable of the prodigal son. From the series, God Loves You, He Always Has, He Always Will, here's David to conclude his message, God Loves You, Even When You Don't Love Him. Well, that's the truth, friends. God's love is not conditioned upon our love for Him. He loves us when we're not loving Him, even as Christians. When we become Christians and we go away on our own journey and and we backslide and get away from God, He doesn't quit loving us. He doesn't say, okay, you don't want anything to do with me. I don't want anything to do with you. No, no. God's love sustains through all experiences. And one of the ways we know that is not only from the actual truth written in the Scripture, but from the stories and parables of Jesus. Of course, one of the most famous is the parable of the prodigal son. And we'll get back to that today in just a few moments as we talk about how God loves us even when we don't love him. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. Friends, you can have the material on the love of God by going to the website, davidjeremiah.org. There you will see a little uh, display of the book, the study guide, the DVD package, and the CD package. You can get all of that or any of it. And uh, many of you may want to use this as a core curriculum for a Bible study. Many folks have used this particular series to get together and talk with one another on a weekly basis. We're so thankful for the privilege we have of creating these materials. We want you to use them and share them. And uh, you can find out more about that by going to our website. There you will get information that will help you get started with this opportunity. We also want you to know that during the month of January, our resource of the month is the book by Nancy DeMoss Wolgamoth. And uh, I had the privilege of writing the forward to this book, and I know the book well. I read it more than once in many places. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful message for our culture about the sovereignty of God and how heaven rules. You may think the world is out of control, and I guess it is. But if you took a look into heaven, all is well. God is in control, and he will help you live under the umbrella of his sovereignty if you give him a chance. This book will help you negotiate that, and I hope you will give us the chance to give it to you. We want to send it to you as our way of saying thank you for your investment in Turning Point during the month of January. Just ask for the book, Heaven Rules, when you send your gift. All right, here's part two of God Loves You Even When You Don't Love Him from Luke 15. With no place else to go and starvation facing him, the prodigal is coming home. As he nears the village and his father's house, his father recognizes him. And the Bible says that when his father saw him, he had compassion and he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the text means he continually kissed him. He just kissed him over and over again. Literally, he raced to meet his son. Let me tell you, 
how this plays into the Jewish culture. In the Middle East, a man of his age and position always walked in a slow, dignified fashion. But this father, we are told, is running. And to do so, he would have to take the front edge of his robes and pull them up in his hands like a teenager. And when he does this, his legs show in what is considered a humiliating posture. And all of this is painfully shameful for him. But his compassion and his knowledge of what this young man will face if he comes back into the village, his compassion for his son is so great that he takes upon himself all of the shame and the humiliation that he knows is about to be poured out on this young man. And he rushes out to the edge of the village and there he embraces his son. And there he welcomes him home. How many of you know that our Father in heaven has taken upon his son, upon himself, all of the shame and all of the sinfulness of us? Please read the text carefully. The Father does not demonstrate love in response to the son's confession. Rather, before any confession could be heard, he pours out his love on his son, showering him with kisses. The immense joy in welcoming back his lost son hides the sorrow that has gone before. And when his son is finally able to speak in a moment of genuine repentance, he accepts the father's love. It's quite obvious that the father found his son. Where did he find him? At the edge of the village. He found him before he came back into the city. The prodigal was still lost when he got to the outskirts of town. There's no break in the imagery of these three stories about lost objects. All three of them, something has been lost and is found. The lost thing did not find itself. It is found by another. It is in response to the outpouring of his father's love that the prodigal finally understands what he has done to his father's heart. How many of you think that father probably took on a lot of age while his son was gone? Probably his son saw the age of his father. And that added to the sense of remorse for what he had done. I was reading and studying about this, and I came across an incredible story that's in a book written by Henry Nouwen, who's a Catholic scholar. He talked about one day seeing the picture Uh, the painting of the prodigal son that was done by Rembrandt, one of his great, great paintings. He saw it in a museum, and he said he sat in front of that painting for almost five hours, just staring at the painting, studying every nuance of color and expression. And his whole book is built upon this, what he learned from the picture that Rembrandt painted of the prodigal. One of my good friends gave me a huge print of that picture. And I studied it, not for five hours, but I looked at it. And you can see the anguish on the father's face, and you can see how this young man is so, he's so trashed. His sandals are broken, and the father has arms clear. He's so thin because he hasn't eaten. The father's arms reach clear around him. He's in the father's arms. God loves you when you're weeping in his arms. Number seven, God loves you when you're welcomed back home. Notice verse 22. 
But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Obviously, when the father ran out to meet the sons, he probably had some servants who cared for him and they ran out there with him. So after the kissing and embracing was over and maybe a short conversation between the two of them, the father turns to one of the servants and he says, go get the best robe we have and bring it here. The best robe would have been a beautifully crafted piece of formal wear, usually belonging to the patriarch in the family. He turns to the servant and he says, go get the ring. The ring in a Jewish estate was a very important piece of jewelry. Not only adorned the hand, but it was used to transact business. Then the father said, go get him a pair of sandals. Sandals were always worn by sons, never worn by servants. The robe and the ring and the sandals provide answers to the speech which the prodigal made to his father. Watch carefully. Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth. And the robe says, there must be a cleansing. It's no doubt true that before they put on the father's robe over this bedraggled young man, they washed his body and cleansed him up, and then they put on the father's robe. Father, I have sinned. And the robe says, cared for. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Go get the ring and put it on his finger. Only sons wear the official ring of the family. It's used to transact business. You press it into the wax of the document to say this is official. Father, treat me as a hired servant. You're no servant in my house. Go get the sandals and put them on his feet. In every respect, the father is answering the questions in the heart of this returning son. You will not be an outcast of this family. Notice, all this is happening before they get into the village. The father reinstates him into the family, puts the best robe they have on his shoulders, puts the ring on his finger and the shoes on his feet, and then together they march into the village. Who's going to mess with that? And the Bible says they kill the fatted calf. They had a feast, and they began to be merry. This is borrowing a verse from later on in the text that says, there is joy in heaven when one sinner returns to the Lord. I've always thought this is the only party I've ever read about that was a party on earth and a party in heaven all at the same time. The young man had come home. Jesus loves you when you're wounding his heart. He loves you when you're walking away. He loves you when you're wasting your life. He loves you when you're wallowing in sin. He loves you when you're trying to come back. He loves you when you're wrapped in his arms. He loves you when he's welcomed you back into the family. And then the last part of the story, he loves you when you won't love him. In reality, this should not be called the parable of the prodigal son, but the parable of the prodigal son's The Bible says a certain man had two sons. And we've talked all about this one boy who went off into the far country and rebelled against his father and went through all this remorse and came back and he was welcomed home by his dad. Where's the other son? 
Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you kill the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Now watch what's going on here. Out in the field supervising his father's business was this older son. He did not see his brother come back, but when he came home at the end of the day, he heard all this partying going on in the house. So he calls the young servant over to him and he says, what's going on? And the servant explained to him about the return of the young boy and how happy his father was. And you would have thought that the older son would have joined in with the festivity and said, whoa, we've been praying about this for the longest time. By the way, have you ever noticed in this story there's no record of the older son ever going to try to find out where his young brother was? I mean, there's all kinds of stories today about Private Ryan and all these kind of stories where people get lost and hurt and brothers go and look for their brothers. Amen? Not this brother. I mean, he had it made. He had two-thirds of the real estate. He had control of everything that was in his father's hands. He could care less whether his brother came home. And when he found out he did come home and his father was throwing a party for him, he was not a happy camper. Listen to his words. He said, Father, these many years I have been serving you. All this time he'd been grimly doing his job. All this time he had been grouchily carrying out his responsibility. Still frustrated over the fact that his younger brother had taken a third of their wealth. And sometimes we forget in this story that the older boy was not treated prejudicially. I remember when I first started reading this story years ago, I used to think, well, why wouldn't he be mad? I mean, his younger brother had got a third of his inheritance and he didn't get anything. But that's not true. If you go back and read the story carefully, you will see it says, and he divided unto them their inheritance. Not singular, plural. So both boys got everything. And the older boy had everything he would ever get from his father. It was a preemptive strike on the inheritance. And here he is living at home, really has nothing to do. He's in the far country. Who knows what he's doing out there away from the family. And the younger man is gone, rebellious, and the older son is now expressing his righteousness. Dad, I've been a perfect son. I've done everything you've told me to do. And I want you to note something. Listen to me carefully. The older son is as lost as the younger son. He did all the things that a good son is supposed to do, but his heart wasn't in it. The younger son came back from a far country to his father's home. The older son went out into a far country of smug self-satisfaction and resentment. And Jesus said that the elder brother would not go into the house to join in the celebration. How many of you know that the lostness of the elder son is much harder to identify because after all, he did all the right things. He was obedient and dutiful and law-abiding and hardworking and people respected him and admired him and praised him and likely considered him a model. Outwardly, the elder son was faultless, but when confronted by his father's joy at the return of his younger brother, 
a dark power erupts in him and boils to the surface. Suddenly there becomes glaringly visible a resentful, proud, unkind, selfish person. I remember reading somewhere that once you meet the older brother, it's easier to understand why the younger brother wanted to leave home. (laughs) And listen to me, as far as we know, the elder son never did respond to the father's love. Isn't it interesting? The story ends there, and you don't know what happened to him. All you know is he's standing outside the party, watching the party, and he hasn't gone in. Did the father go and get him like he went after the younger son? Absolutely. Just as he went to the edge of the village to get the younger son and involve him in the festivities, he went out of the house where the young man was standing in rebellion and tried to coax him to come to the party, and he would not. This is a great story, is it not? But I want to tell you why Jesus told the story. This is not just a good story for us, so I have good sermon material. If you can't preach the prodigal son, you should turn your Bible in. But most of the time, we tell the story, and we never understand why it was told in the first place. Only two verses are used to introduce this story in Luke 15, the first two verses of the chapter. Look down at your Bible and see what they say. Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. They were really incensed over Jesus' companionship with what they considered to be the down-and-out people of their day. Do you remember that once Jesus actually went after one of these down-and-out people— and coaxed him into becoming one of his disciples. Matthew 9 says it this way. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciple, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was when he was calling Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes thought they were righteous just like the elder brother. And they were as sinful as the tax collectors and the sinners that they didn't want Jesus to have dinner with. In fact, Jesus, when he heard their question, rather than directly answering it, said, let me tell you three stories. And he told them the story of a lost sheep and a lost coin and a lost son. And in essence, he says, you're upset because I eat with sinners and talk with them? Let me tell you, it's worse than that. I chase them down. I go find them. I go get them and bring them back home. That's how much I love them. And in his response is this aching in the heart of Jesus because they don't understand that they're in the same situation as the sinners that they don't want anything to do with. And Jesus, like the father in the prodigal story, opens his arms to them so that they can become part of his forgiveness. But how many of you know it's harder for someone like that to come to Christ than it is for someone who knows intuitively and viscerally how sinful they are? You know, if you're still holding on to your own righteousness, if you're still clinging to your own good works, if you're still thinking about how good you are, and how do you usually do that? By comparing yourself to others. (laughs) You know, you find some down-and-out person and you use them as your standard and say, I'm sure not like that. I must be okay. 
The Pharisees and the scribes loved to do that. They would stand at the edge of the crowd when Jesus was teaching, listening for him to say something they could get after him about, but never entering in. Plenty among us are good rules keepers, are we not? We obey the laws, we go to church, we know that we are seen as exemplary citizens, but inwardly we are as morally bankrupt as the elder son who not only refused to rejoice at the good fortune of his lost young brother being found, he would not even accept his father's invitation to the banquet and he wouldn't even call him his brother. Remember what he called him? This son of yours has come back. Just like the Pharisees, he was standoffish. Yet I want to say to you, and it doesn't sound like this belongs right here, but it does. God loves Pharisees and older brothers, even as they scowl and pout. And if you are like one of those people, and this is uncomfortable for you right now because you've been playing this little game for a long time, I want to tell you something. Listen carefully. God loves you. He always has, and he always will. And his heart yearns for your return to repentance and forgiveness with the same intensity that he yearns over that lost sinner who's in the far country. Because with God, there is no difference. When you're a sinner, you're a sinner. You're either a down-and-out sinner or a painted-up sinner, but you're still a sinner. (laughs) What does it mean to be a sinner? It means... To not understand that Jesus Christ is your only hope for heaven. That he's your only way back to the Father. The Bible says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. You can hear that at the bottom of your life, or you can hear it at the top. It really makes no difference. Wherever you are on the continuum between the two brothers, the message is still the same. God loves you. He always has and he always will. And he holds out his arms of welcome for you to come. I will say to you that it's much more likely that if you're having a rough time in your life and you're down and out and you're not doing as well as you thought, it'll be a lot easier for you to come because you know intuitively what life is like when there's no God. It'll be harder for you if things are going well, if your 401k is doing okay and yet down deep in your heart you know there's this emptiness That's called being lost. (laughs) But here's what I want you to know before we close our Bibles. There's a party going on. (laughs) And you're invited. It's not only a party down on earth. There's a party going on in heaven. And that party is going to be extended one day throughout eternity. And I know you think that that's not going to be exciting. But I want to tell you before we're finished with this series. I'll tell you how exciting that's going to be. The party starts the moment you accept Christ into your life. The Bible says there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents. The Bible says that when the young man came home, what happened? Merriment broke out. You're missing the joy of the Father's house if you won't say, Lord God, I'm a sinner. Father, I have sinned and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your servants. And I hear the Father saying, No. You can have my robe, you can have my ring, and you can put on the shoes, and you can be part of the family, but you've got to come and acknowledge what you've done. Say it any way you like. In order to be saved, you have to repent of your sin. In order to be saved, you have to know that you need to be saved. As long as you hold on to your righteousness, you can't be saved. 
But when you come back, whether you're a good person or a person going through some really, really dark moments in your life, the answer is still the same. God loves you. He always has and he always will. He sent his son to be your savior. If you will accept him, you can come to the party. (laughs) You can be a part of the family. Amen. You know, I so hope that when you listen to these programs, you don't just kind of file them someplace in the back of your head, especially if you don't know Jesus Christ in a personal way. My friends, this is an encounter with God. This is an opportunity for you to reflect upon your own life and ask yourself this question. If I were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to me, why should I let you into my heaven? What would I say? And if you haven't received Christ as your personal savior, you don't have an answer. There is only one answer, and that is that you've trusted Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So why don't you make that decision today? Bow your head. Ask God to forgive you for your sin. Tell him that you want to have Jesus Christ in your life and invite Christ to be your Savior. He'll come in. He'll change you from the inside out and make you a new person. I so long for you to have that. I passionately encourage you to think seriously about your relationship with Almighty God. Well, tomorrow we are going to talk about how God's love is at work even when he's correcting us. How about that? Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Whoa, what does that mean? We'll talk about it tomorrow. Thanks for joining us. message today came to you from Shadow Mountain Community Church and senior pastor, Dr. David Jeremiah. Will you update us on this ministry's impact on your life? Write to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of Heaven Rules by Nancy DeMoss Wolgamuth and learn to find comfort and courage in this chaotic world. The book is yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your favorite smart devices or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue God loves you, He always has, He always will, here on Turning Point. If you've enjoyed today's program with Dr. David Jeremiah, you might be interested in hearing it again at your convenience. Stay connected to Turning Point by visiting our website at davidjeremiah.ca or by downloading our free Canadian mobile app. The app can be found by searching for Turning Point Canada on your smart device app store. Create an account and order digital resources from today's program with easy one-click checkout at davidjeremiah.ca. Take the young ones in your life on an unforgettable journey that will get them excited about the Word of God with the Airship Genesis Kids Study Bible. Then continue the adventure with monthly audio adventures on airshipgenesis.com. Plus, download the Airship Genesis mobile game, where kids will travel back in time to the life of Jesus. Blast off with the young one in your life at airshipgenesis.com. Through the years, many Christians have asked me how to discover God's will for their life. 
The well-known Bible teacher Henry Blackaby has an answer that is well worth considering. He says, Learning to follow God's ways may be more important than making sincere attempts to do His will. God wants to complete His work through you. He can only do that as you adjust your life to Him and to His ways. I agree. When we get in step with God, following His ways in all of our life, we will in time discover His specific calling for our life. God's ways come before God's will. And this is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's ways on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com. Start your journey home today.